Welcome to this episode of Print Run. Today is October 10th. My name is Eric Kane. With me as always is Laura Zatz. Laura, greet the people. Hi, people. Yeah, so we've got a great second episode for you today. We're going to be focusing on the probable outing of Elena Ferrante's identity and what that means in terms of authorship and in terms of consumerism as with regard to books. Uh, but first, we wanted to talk a little bit about some housekeeping stuff for the show. Which is probably my second favorite kind of keeping after the J.K. Rowling, <laughs> Harry Potter type. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> Rowling's in the show now. Rowling's in the show. Friend of the podcast, J.K. Rowling. She's not going away, folks. Uh, so we are literary agents, mm-hmm. and we have decided to give ourselves a public forum. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. Imagine. Uh, so we want to use our our power for good, I guess. Yeah. So what we're doing is we are announcing special content. That's capital S, capital C. <laughs> special content. Yeah. Twice a month. Eric and I are going to be producing special episodes on top of our four regular ones mm-hmm. that are geared specifically towards the writer, the querying writer, the writer that is workshopping. Um, if you're thinking about doing nano, this is something for you. Okay, so that was real. That was real jargony. Your nano there. Oh. Um, we that was short for something that's already short. Uh, that was for NaNoWriMo or National Novel Writing Month, which um, is November. But yeah, way to be real insidery. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. But where? So tell us more. Tell us more, Laura, about this great content we'll be providing. So this great content. <laughs> uh, we have two different episodes. Yeah. Uh, the first time we do these two episodes, we'll be giving them out for free for mm-hmm. our listeners. Um, and then thereafter, we will be giving away these episodes to our Patreon supporters because we um, need to keep the lights on. Yeah, I'm real hungry. I'm down to Cheerios with no milk. <gasps> so sign up for the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> your your Venus flytrap <laughs> is eating better than that. <laughs> it is. At least he's getting meat. All I get is like, yeah. Anyway. Cheerios. Um, Okay, so these two episodes, here's what they are. The first one is a query show. So that is we take your real anonymous queries that you sent to us specifically for this show. Don't Uh worry, we're not going to be mining our slush piles for something to make fun of. Yeah, this will be something that you send us specifically for this purpose. And to listen to so that we can help you. So if you send us your query, we will assess it on air. Mm Mm-hmm. And give you feedback. I'm really hoping I find something good. Yeah, no, that'd be fun to be able to find a book to sign through the radio. Ah, wouldn't that be great? That'd be like a nice agenting trick. That'd be like a... It would. Be like, oh, how did you get this New York Times bestselling author? How did you find them? (laughs) The radio. Yeah. Um, So we're going to start this one as soon as possible. We have one submission so far. Uh, and we can do this without you or not, but we'd prefer to do it with you. Um, if we don't have enough queries to fill the entire hour, then what we're going to be doing is putting in some write tips and some query tips like we have at the end of every episode yeah. anyway. Yeah, so I mean really the point here is we want to provide two extra episodes a month that are geared really specifically up toward writers and people trying to get books represented and published. I mean, obviously the show itself is going to happen once a week and we're going to be talking a lot about the larger book world along with writing stuff, but we want these two episodes through Patreon to be really specifically geared toward helping you query, helping you write, helping you make that first impression that can maybe help you get through, you know, that 
that to the next step in finding an agent and finding a publisher. Which brings us to our second episode, which is something that we can only do when we have enough submissions from you guys. Mm-hmm. So this is our first pages episode. So we will be critiquing the first page or so of books that are sent to us. And from there, we'll go through, you know, how agents specifically read these books. Yeah. What is it that makes us want to keep reading? What makes us um, turn away? Right. What are certain ways that you can get around these various problems that most writers yeah. have? Um, so again, those are those are real examples. Yeah. So I suppose we should tell you how to find us. Please do. So... Our Patreon, you can just search on patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N because it's patron with an E because it's fancy. Because it's artsy. It's modern. Hmm. It's Uber for paying liberal arts kids. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, that's exactly what it is. But uh, we'd very much appreciate your patronage. Uh, So you can find us there. You can also link to that through our website, which is Mm printrunpodcast.com. We also have fancy buttons under the tab for special content, capital S, capital C, (laughs) on our website that you can click through and submit your manuscript that way. Or you can just skip all of that if you don't like all those buttons and can email us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Come find us. So it should be really fun. Those shows should be good. They should be really we hope, helpful, um, and we think that it'll be kind of a good way to give back, you know? Yeah, if you've ever been to a writing conference, especially one with lots of agents, you'll you'll have seen something relatively similar, yeah. which is the gong show. But what that is is... <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it. Tell me, yeah. I oh, know oh the gong is show is no, the I'm best. I'm too new to this. I want so, to hear about the gong show. So the gong show is based off of a TV show from the 70s. Uh-huh. So what it is, there's a panel of judges, meaning agents and editors, that sit up at the front of a room. And then they, there's an MC who has all of these listed um, anonymous queries. Yeah. And they read them. And as soon as we would stop reading, yeah. essentially, yeah. we'd hit a gong. Not all conferences have gongs. The best ones do. But other times we just raise our hands or something. Yeah. Uh, and when there are three hands up or three gongs, that's when they stop reading and we all go through and say what we liked about it, what we didn't like about it, what our what our what our suggestions for it are. So it's going to be that, but we're not going to stop reading. We're going to go through the whole thing so you have an entire queries worth of feedback. Can um, we get a gong for the we, show? We can. Okay, so if you get <laughs> if enough people sign up for Patreon, we will put that money toward a gong. Absolutely. And we will yeah, we'll I'll just ring it. It won't even have to do anything. I'll just start hitting it anytime I like disagree with your take on something or something. <laughs> <laughs> just be. <laughs> I mean, we have hi hats right behind yeah. you. We're in, we're in a we're in a sound studio in the bottom of artist loft. So if you hear some like really bad covered like seventies rock. Oh yeah, there was some Leonard Skinner going earlier. I was getting real into it. Yeah. So if you hear, or and there were some four non blondes yeah, too. So was... if you hear any of that in our background, it's not us. It's our neighbors. Um, let's let's keep call Eric... it a, call it a collaboration. <laughs> Let's keep Eric away from the hi hat tonight, uh, and move on. Yeah. Um, well, so moving on is tricky, Laura, because as you know, working in publishing means that there is something each and every week that signals the very end of the book publishing world itself, um, <gasps> the destruction of the industry as a whole. Um, something we like to call the publishing death knell of the week. This so. is where a gong would come in handy. <laughs> yeah. This, yeah. Exactly. 
gong. Yeah, perfect. Um, so um, we, we can edit out my awful gong noise, right? We're absolutely not doing that. <laughs> okay, so, but anyway, um, the thing that is absolutely going to bring publishing to its knees this week, um, we are getting that courtesy of Simon & Schuster, um, who have published a book titled Murder in the Bayou by Ethan Brown. Uh, which, true crime. Yeah, which seems to be a true crime book about a murder of, I think, eight prostitutes, eight prostitutes out down in Louisiana. In and, the Jefferson Davis Parish. Yeah. Um, so the reason this is interesting to me is not necessarily this uh, true crime story, though I'm sure it's riveting. It's that it names in the book. It names a it names a Republican congressman. Um, it names Republican representative Charles Bustani as a client of some of the murdered sex workers known as the Jeff Davis Eight. And this guy is running currently for U.S. Senate. Yeah. So you've got this Louisiana dude who was minding his own business, or apparently not. Apparently, he was not minding his own business. He was minding uh, somebody else's business. So he was, <laughs> he was minding up to three prostitutes' business, um, but. He was minding people's business down in Louisiana, and he's now running for Senate, and he's not thrilled with this book. And so, like any good Republican congressman, he's decided to start suing publishers, um, which is Specifically Scribner, which Um, is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. (laughs) Yeah, so now we've got this situation where this guy is trying to put down these rumors that have come out in this book about whether or not he was involved with these sex workers. and there's a pimp involved. What's the guy's name? Oh gosh! It's uh, Big G. Yeah, Big G has named this um, this congressman. Uh, Big G is welcome on the show at any point. By any the way, point. Um, anytime you want to show up, uh, friend of the podcast, Big G. Um, but so I mean, really, what we have here is a classic situation where a politician decided he doesn't like what the what the book says, and he is suing. And this um, book isn't even out. I'm not even sure that he knows what it says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, he just got, he got named, I guess, in the reporting back in, in 2012. Um, but, um, or so he thinks, he will be bringing publishing to its knees. He will bringing, be bringing all of Simon & Schuster to a heel. He will be bringing unsuspecting author of this book, Ethan Brown, um, begging for mercy because... Like anything, the greatest force in America is the Republican congressman lawyering up. Uh. Do you do you think that this sets a dangerous precedent right now, Eric? Do I think that publishing needs to be worried about Charles Bustani um, suing Simon and Schuster because he's mad that his hooker well, this he's is, got found Well, this out? is an election year, and there's all sorts <laughs> of unfavorable things coming to light from media companies. Yeah, that is true. In an election year. Well, I guess it depends how the next few months go. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, publishing is, you know, that's your, that's your publishing death knell of the week, folks. Um, this is the end. Well, we're done. It we'll was be, a good run. Yeah, no, this was it was a good run. I'm going to be I'm going to go be an electrician after this. <laughs> after <laughs> um, But yeah, so should we should we move on to our to our main story? Do you think to, there's a point? After after this death knell, yeah, that I mean we that's that's true. It's all kind of you know window dressing on the Titanic at this point. Um, but pretty pretty curtains. <laughs> oh, the curtains are beautiful. That's the joy of publishing is that we've got really really pretty curtains and we're really great at talking about it. But like there's a big old hole in the middle of the boat. Like that... real real velvet, <laughs> not just velour. Yeah 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 yeah. yeah. Like real good, very yeah. luxurious. Yeah. Something that uh, a wedding venue would charge ridiculous amounts of money for. Wait, wait, why are you got wedding venues on the mind? Laura? Would, you like to, would you like to tell the I, listeners what's going on? I toured one earlier. You were, you, were, you were thrilled about it. Laura's getting married. 
I am, and I don't know how I'm going to pay for it now that publishing's done. Yeah, that is going to be a bummer. Yep. Yep. I'm just going to have to chew on my whiskey find ice a, cubes just like you. Find a profession with a union. That'll help. <laughs> well, you're already going to be a electrician. Yeah, 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 no, that'll be good. Well, okay, maybe I'll join you. <laughs> Seems kind of hard, though. Yeah, I'm real bad with my hands in that way. I get real, like, antsy. I've already got, like, arthritis coming. I mean, it's no good. You pace a lot, too. I don't think yeah. that's good for being, like, N- inside of walls. No, I'm, I'm aging incredibly poorly. It's not <laughs> <laughs> It's not a good situation. Um, but let's... Let's move to let's move to our main topic, which is something that the book world, the was, woman of the hour, yeah, the woman of the hour, uh, something that the book world and people even outside, just readers of all kinds, were really fired about these last couple of weeks, um, and that's the New York Review of Books story in which they seem to have investigated and found out um, Elena Ferrante's true identity. So my favorite part of this article, actually, so that's yeah, we're, we're going to be lots of favorite parts of this article. <laughs> so I'm going to give you kind of a rundown. I have a sneaky favorite part. You have a sneaky. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited yeah. for this. Um, so so this this article was published by the New York uh, New York Review of Books because you know from from an Italian journalist, right. Who published it through an American, <laughs> an American yeah. website because nobody would publish it in Italy. Interesting. Uh, so this this is the title: Elena Ferranti, an answer? Question mark. So it's written by Claudio Gatti, who is actually not having anything to do with publishing. So he is a forensic journalist, or not forensic, a financial journalist who uses financial forensics oh. to determine things. There we go. Financial forensics. Financial I feel forensics. Like I need a financial forensics. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe. maybe. Uh, anyway. does, does that mean they're already dead? Yeah. Um, All right. So Elena Ferranti, just in case you don't know, and it's okay because I didn't know either, uh, is a novelist who has been publishing in Italy since 1992, and she's had sensational success for four of her many novels that make up something called the Neapolitan Quartet, which mm-hmm. was published um, sometime between 2011 and 2014. Yep. Um, and the big thing is that this Elena Ferranti is very, very publicly anonymous. It's a pseudonym. It's a pseudonym, but it's a pseudonym that like wants you to know it's a pseudonym. Yeah. But to be fair, she has been publishing for literally a quarter of a decade or a quarter of a century. So um, going very quickly through this article, um, Claudio, we're going to call him Claudio. He's a friend of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, he is. Welcome (laughs) on anytime. Welcome, Claudio. Um, Apparently, there's been lots and lots of speculation about Elena Ferranti's identity. Uh There's never been any photos. They almost knew nothing about her. Um, but she's been kind of strangely public. She's been granting lots of written interviews, um, especially once she became really popular in the English-speaking world. Right, right. So, and these books are very popular. They're in the extremely popular. World. I mean, I feel like most of our listeners and most of our listeners' friends have probably read a lot of these. I mean, I know lots and lots of people who have read the Ferrante books. I mean, they they're kind of they're kind of hot right now. They're very hot right now. So hot. <laughs> And so one of the reasons is on November 1st in the United States, uh, her publisher is publishing a book that's kind of an outline of her family background. And it's called 
Frontumalia, A Writer's Journey. I don't speak Italian. Who knows how that was actually pronounced? Um, what this word literally means is fragments. So they're little tiny vignettes about this author's life that have never, you know, nobody knows because who, yeah. who knows who this person is. Um, and so Claudio, uh, Claudio came in deep with the hot takes here, folks. What he came got? in, he came in deep. He took a months long investigation uh, and has a, quote, powerful case for Ferranti's true identity. Okay, so he basically took a month and traveled and went with the sole mission of digging up this woman's real name. Right? That's basically what we've got. And you'll see that he really went to some lengths. He did. So he looked at it from the real estate portion and the financial rec- and, and in her financial records. And he has concluded that she is Anita Raja. Raja? Raja? It's, I don't know. I'm going to say Raja. It's Raja in Spanish. Let's so go we'll with go that. with that. Yeah, yeah. A That's Rome-based good. translator whose German-born mother fled the Holocaust and later married a Neapolitan magistrate. So, okay, so yeah, so here's what's crazy about this is this dude found this, you know, this woman that he thinks um, is Elena Ferrante. And he dug in, yeah, like you were saying, he dug into her real estate stuff, he dug into her financial information, he found out that this woman had bought a new apartment that cost far too much for what she was claiming her job was, which was actually the <laughs> the truest part of the article for me, where he was like, she's claiming to be a freelance writer. No way that pays for that. And I was, I was like nodding along there. I was like, A yeah. translator, which is <laughs> like, even worse than being like, a freelance yes, writer. Yes, the, the most plausible part of this article is that a freelancer isn't making any money, and that's definitely <laughs> so. Definitely not making $4 million yeah. a year. Um, so what so what Claudio then goes on to do is kind of tracing her work with the publisher of Ferranti's novels. And it's this very, very tiny publisher, right? And apparently yeah. she's been absolutely not an employee, but she's done some translation work, but has also been pulling a lot of extra money from this publisher that nobody else has seen. Um, let's see. Yeah, she's got different apartments. Her husband also bought a ridiculously expensive apartment. Oh, the husband's a real sticking point in this story. Oh, absolutely. Because people out. many years ago had used some sort of fancy doctoral like language analysis to kind of guess that it was her husband who was originally Ferrante. Okay, so let me let's cut to the the point here with this. We have a situation in which an author who has been successful and has been, um, you know, whose books have been out there for, you know, about 24, 25 years now. Um, we've been, we as in, I guess, the royal we, some people have been vigorously searching for identity. We now think we've found it. Um, and this is something I'm going to ask a lot on this show about all the various things we talk about. But Laura, why is everyone mad about this? Everyone's mad because... She wanted to be anonymous because it doesn't matter yeah. who she is. Everyone's mad because they liked the mystery of who it was because it meant that they got to to read the novels in a way that aren't that novels aren't normally read before. So a lot of people now look at books through the lens of who's writing them, you sure. know, with especially with a lot of the diversity talks lately. There's been a lot of, you know, who gets to write what? Is this an authentic representation according to, you know, this author's experiences? There's something about being 
or I guess knowing who the writer is that helps you read more deeply into a novel in yeah. certain ways. Yeah. It's the author very, matters, so people yeah. want to know. It, yeah, but it's very refreshing to not have that. You know, yeah. I think it's I think it's the same way why people are constantly digging at Jane Austen and Shakespeare yeah. to either disprove that they're the ones that actually wrote it mm-hmm. or to find out more about their life. You know, right. what what was Geoffrey Chaucer doing in his lost years? Right. What was what right. was what was Shakespeare doing as a Glover's son? What why why did they write this? Why did they give us this? So there's two it sounds like it sounds like there's two forces at play here. Um, the first is that readers and literary critics and anyone with an interest in novels, we really want to know who the authors of books are. Like, we want to know who these people are. We want to interact with them. We want to see them. We want to, I don't know, we want to be, we want to know as much as we can about them. We want to attach, like you're saying, we want to attach the author to the work. And then the other force, it sounds like that everyone, from what I could tell on Twitter, where you know, rage goes to bloom into beautiful flowers. <laughs> <laughs> um, it sounds like the other force was that people viewed this article, and I would, I think that I agree with this too, as a real invasion of this woman's privacy. Absolutely. Um, which a stranger digging into your finances. Absolutely. To have offended people, and you know, there's all this stuff about how um, this journalist reached out to the publisher and had to be told multiple times that no answers would be given from the publisher and he reached out to all these people and he kept being told no and he kind of talks about them. You know, the one thing that kind of stuck out to me in this article, and I am someone, as we're going to talk about, who does not view this person's pursuit as inherently bad, but there's definitely a level of arrogance to this article in which this person thinks it is absolutely his right to get to the bottom of this and the fact that they would deny it is some sort of journal is some sort of journalistic roadblock where they are withholding absolutely necessary information he has a right to have, and I don't know. I don't necessarily agree that that's the case, but you get that whiff from from Claudio. <laughs> nobody, and and to be clear, nobody has acknowledged that this woman is Elena Ferrante. Nobody's, sure, yeah, that's, yeah nobody's okay, even okay. denied it okay, either. So they say that we're not. They're not going to talk answers. about. It. They're not going to talk about it. Um, and that that is a good point worth bringing up. Is that. We we don't know for sure, um, but I think it's still instructive to talk about this because of the backlash of this story, because of the um, reaction. It, this drew a really strong reaction, much stronger than I thought. And I think, you know, a place that I was seeing a lot of the kind of anger and consternation directed was this, the husband angle, that it felt like there were a lot of people who took offense to this on kind of a... Um, sexism or gender level in which people were looking to dig in to Elena Ferrante's identity because they assumed that she was actually a man, that it was a man writing these novels. And they assumed that it was her husband. And they were so ready to be proved that that was the case, and they kept not finding that to be true. And it turned out it was, um, according to this article, this you know this woman, his, his wife. And... But there's something I would agree is somewhat insulting about a whole pursuit being geared around the idea that we're going to prove that Elena Ferrante is a man that, I don't know, obviously that's that's fairly problematic. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's left over from the larger canon. I mean, you think, you think about our, our largest female authors, you know, we have 
George Eliot, we have Jane Austen, and we have Harper Lee, mm-hmm. we have J.K. Rowling, we yeah. have all of these authors. Rowling's an interesting case here, and she's going to factor in in a minute. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But we have all of these female authors for who, for some reason or another, you know, the older, you know, the older the authors are, um, you know, it's simply because they wouldn't be taken seriously or they wouldn't be published because they were women. You know, the farther we get along, you know, it's something that I hear a lot working in genre fiction. Yeah. That, you know, women writing romance change their name so nobody looks down on them. Right. And women in speculative fiction, particularly science fiction, use initials or pseudonyms because otherwise men won't read them and they won't have any sales. Interesting. So it's, I mean, and that's absolutely not true anymore, Um, or at least I like to think it is. But it's, it's becoming less true. It's becoming less true, but it's something that's still... But sometimes you still, get pursuits like this. Yeah, it's feel. something that's very, very present. Yeah. And it's and it's something that, that we think about. And so, you know, and this these are books that are read mostly by women. These are women's fiction. This is, this well, so is that, a buildings roman of two women. Well, so that's the thing, right, is the Ferrante novels um, are praised, first and foremost, it feels like, because of their incredible ability to depict women's friendship. Absolutely. It's, they're, they're women's novels. They're books about women on a complex literary level. Um, but it's these are female books. They're very inherently female in the way they're discussed, in the way they're written, in the characters, things like that. Yeah, and, and that's why I think a lot, especially of, of the female readership, thinks that this is an invasion. Sure. It's, it's just another man sticking his... <laughs> sticking his face in there and trying to undermine the the genius right. of a female writer, right. which I feel like, you know, that's a that's a good point. It reminds me a lot of celebrities, to be honest. Yeah. You know, we're we're very lucky that this happened the same week that Kim Kardashian got robbed. Oh, God. You thought I wasn't going to go there. I Yeah. OK. <laughs> Eric just like All gave right. me the I'm look. A, before we <laughs> go on that tangent, I want to read you. The Guardian Please. did a really nice job. Um, this week of collecting various quotes from Elena Ferrante over the um, years. So th- this is and this is an interesting angle. To this is she has given so usually often when you have an author who has chosen to be anonymous who's used a pseudonym, the reason for that is they want to keep a private life. They want to keep away from the public. But I don't know that that is necessarily as much the case here, um, because we're seeing you know I have a list here of a ton of different interviews. That Elena Ferrante. 16. 16 yeah, exactly. Quotes. So she's out here. She's talking to people. She's make she's got media availability. She's out here promoting her books in her own way, in a really interesting way. And that's great. Um, but it's a really interesting dynamic when you place that with the idea that she doesn't want anyone to actually know her name. So you're getting these interviews with Elena Ferrante pseudonym, but the interview is still there. And that's that's fascinating to me. But I want to read you a quote. Um, and there are a few of these I want to get to, but um, just to you know, kick off the next little bit of this, I'm going to read you a quote she gave to Vanity Fair um, about her own anonymity. And that's the thing, is she wants to talk a lot, and this is going to get to my larger point later, is Elena Ferrante spends a lot of time talking about how she's Elena Ferrante, (laughs) Um, which is interesting. Um, But here we go. So this is a quote from her and from Vanity Fair. I have not chosen anonymity. My books are signed. Rather, I have withdrawn from the rituals that writers are more or less obligated to perform in order to sustain their book by lending to them their author's expendable image. And it's worked out fine so far. 
My books increasingly demonstrate their independence, so I see no reason to change my position. It would be deplorably incongruent. You know, I... Okay, so so this is a really interesting point, and this is something that we'll get back to over and over and over again on this show. The differences between writing and being a writer, being an author and being someone who creates content. Sure. Um, and this, this quote is really interesting because she says that she's withdrawn from the rituals that writers are more or less obliged to perform in order to sustain, to, to sustain their book, except for the fact that she's doing an interview, which is, is exactly one of those rituals. Well, so let's look at the quote, though. So these are the bits of this that I find interesting as she's talking about knowing, knowing who she is. And there's that's the paradox here. I have not chosen anonymity. She's not trying to hide. She's come up with a persona that she she intends very much to project. Yeah. She's not hiding. She just doesn't want to be her own name. You know, she doesn't want to be her own. She wants to be this thing, which is perfectly. By the way, like I I know I'm sounding forceful, but like I'm into it. Like I think this is great. But, uh, <laughs> well, it's interesting thing- to me. Like I I think she's right here when she says I have not chosen anonymity. Um, before I had even saw that quote, I was like, no, you haven't. Like I was, as I was reading through these things and kind of thinking about the situation, my real thought was, no, you haven't chosen anonymity. Um, that's the opposite of what you've chosen, but you've done it in such an interesting way that it really bears talking about. And it kind of is the, it's the sort of situation that is going to provoke some really emotional responses from people. Well, one thing that I find really interesting is, is a quote that's not from Vanity Fair. It's from the Sydney Morning Herald. So a completely different time, I think speaks to this a little bit. Uh, she said that she doesn't protect her private life. Uh, she protects her writing, mm-hmm. which I find very interesting because, you know, every every other person who writes under a pseudonym is doing it to protect themselves in some way, whether it's because, you know, Stephen King wasn't allowed to publish more than one book a year. Wait, so let's let's finish or, the, let's finish yes. that quote here, because um, I do think it's good. And oh, OK. I, you're going to make you're going to make a Stephen King point that I think relates to this. Um, I don't want to protect my private life. I protect my writing. I protect it from the same urgency to publish. So which kind of gets to your king point. Yeah, absolutely. So what I was, what I'm, what I'm kind of thinking about is that she's not doing this for herself. She's not doing yeah. this to have a private life. She's not doing this because like Stephen King did in the late seventies and early eighties need a, um, pen name because he was only allowed to publish one or two things. You know, I think what she's doing is totally separating herself from from that that constant urge that people ask you yeah. as celebrity, yeah. as public figure to get that out there. I mean, you know, we make a lot of fun of George R.R. R. Martin on the show. <laughs> and We're going it's to, exactly yeah. <laughs> because George R.R. R. Martin is not paying attention to our urgency for him to yeah. publish. Well, so it gets, it, that gets at the idea, and all of this, I think, gets at the idea of people and readers and critics wanting to engage with the authors as they think about their books. Um, we want to hear from authors. We want to read the interviews of, from the authors of the books we love. We want to see them do various things. We want to know what they're like and how they're, you know, we want to know if a novel is autobiographical. We want to know all these various things. Um, and we w- mostly we just want to talk to the people we think are really talented, right? And that's something that doesn't necessarily even have to do with books. It's just anytime anyone proves themselves good at something. To figure out what that genius people is. People want to know about it. And I think that's a perfectly 
on its face, I think that's a perfectly benign impulse. Um, so there's a quote here from friend of the podcast, J.K. Rowling, um, who, you know, spent some time, you know, as, you know, the detective writer Robert Galbraith, right? She used a pseudonym for a little She's bit. She's still publishing yeah. as Robert right. Galbraith. But people know now. She didn't, people didn't always know Correct. that it was her. Um and she said this, and she said, you know, and the Guardian quotes her here as having sounded resigned when she gave this quote. Um, I always knew if the books had any success, it would become harder and harder to remain anonymous because, quite reasonably, people would say, well, I would like to interview him or ask him some questions. And she has a point there, I think. And I think her the main operative terms in there are quite reasonably. I don't think that it's a bad thing that we want to know who these authors are. But there's a big difference between interviewing and asking questions, which Elena Ferrante has been doing for 24 years. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And going through financial records no, to, yeah, uh, to so, try to, to No, no, no. no. I know I'm definitely like <laughs> I am definitely arguing that what happened was invasive and what happened was, you know, digging into someone's private life certainly without their um, without their consent, um, but there's a sort of journalistic aspect to this, right? We want to know, like, Elena Ferrante, by being Elena Ferrante, by writing terrific books that people love, and by being such a public person, really, um, by giving all these interviews, by being out there as this pseudonym, she's presented the world, the book world specifically, a mystery. And the book world is full of people who are intellectually curious. It's there. It's full of people who want to know stuff. It's full of people who love to read. It's lo- it's people who love journalism. And, I have a question for you though. Yeah. So, even though you have this intellectual curiosity, and I admit I have it too. Yeah. Do you really believe that um, biographical criticism has like has has something to do with your reading experience specifically? Does authorship play into your reading experience? I think it can. You think I it think can? it depends on the situation. I mean, I think that... Does it have I to think, for a book to be truly wonderful? No, not at all. But it certainly adds something, especially later on. I mean, this, you know, one of the examples here is uh, the example of Jane Eyre. And, you know, Charlotte Bronte wrote under a pseudonym originally. And people did the same thing. They dug it up. They figured out who it was. And now... You know, and that was it's sort of a similar situation. People may maybe found that to be invasive or, um, you know, inappropriate to be out there outing this person as you know, Charlotte Bronte. But um, now, when we talk about Jane Eyre, you know, years and years and years later, that definitely informs the way we talk about the book. It's definitely part of the way we preserve it as a classic in the canon. We can place it in an era. We can place it to a person. We can relate her to the life she lived and to me that's important so it's almost like you know how much you want to know about how the literary criticism sausage gets made (laughs) you know what I mean because like it's like let's just say for a second I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to say that these novels are going to last that people will really be cherishing and enjoying these novels a long time from now I mean it seems like they will because they've got um, especially for an American leadership, they've got kind of an international flair. They seem to be very lyrical. They're beautiful. People love them. Um, but aren't future people going to be bringing in this discussion of who this woman actually is? And like this author discussion, I think, is going to help preserve these books. 
it's, it's eventually going to be a net positive for Elena Ferrante's presence in the canon, sure. I would say. There's one thing that, that kind of scares me sure. about biographical criticism yeah. in literature. Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, and that, that has to do with how close the biography of, of an author can carry over into authorial intent. Okay. And I, I am one of those people who, you know, I got my liberal arts English degree <laughs> in, uh, in early modern literature. Now you're begging for money on Patreon. <sighs> so. I am. I'm <laughs> such a stereotype. Hi, uh, Mom. <laughs> so, so in early modern literature, I mean, these are people that yeah. have been dead for a really long time right. and also live in a way right. that, that we can't even comprehend. Um, and you know, if they saw us today, they'd burn us for being witches. Yeah. And so one thing that I, I've had drilled into me is that you can't like authorial intent is a rabbit hole that you just are probably better off not going down unless you're really, really, really prepared for some shit. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, authorial intent is very much tied into, who the author is. And I'm thinking specifically to my man, my man, Bill Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, and just all, all that madness that's, that's popping up every few years about how Shakespeare could not possibly have been Shakespeare. Sure. Which I think is bullcrap. Um, so sorry if you, uh, if you disagree with should me. We, but this should is we my hash podcast. out? Should, <laughs> should we hash out the swearing policy on this show right here on the air? I did say you said bull crap. I did, but then the I po- said something bad oh, earlier. Did you? Okay. I think I might have said shit All right. earlier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I'm. I was just gonna say. I just want to make sure if we've got some rules. Uh, you know, we, we'll talk about that later. Um, um, so let me ask you this though yes. about um, authorial intent and biographical criticism. Aren't they different things? They are. Like, but can't I, I can't I think that isn't it one thing to know about the author and his or her circumstance and various things like that as a means of analyzing a text without needing to make a bunch of conjectured guesses about why he wrote this or why he did it? I feel like there is a difference, and I feel like I, I agree that authorial intent can be a really problematic, thing. and it's it's just kind of silly because you're guessing at the mind of another person, but it's not guessing to know about an author's circumstance. It's not guessing to know that, you know, this this woman, Anita Raha, came from these certain circumstances and that her mother, you know, fled the Holocaust and that all these various things, you know, that's interesting. And I, that's not, those are not subjective things I'm making up and placing in her psyche as a person who doesn't know her. Those are facts that I'm simply bringing to the they're table. They're facts. I mean, I, I I agree that they're different, and I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that we should never yeah. approach biographical criticism as a, as a valid literary tool. Yeah. But, but I, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a slippery slope is all I'm saying. And I don't sure. want people to come at Alana Ferrante and say, you know, I couldn't understand it until this happened. Yeah. You know, there sure. are millions of people, literally millions of people all around the world who are, you know, going along with their daily life fully, fully okay with the fact that Elena Ferrante is just some name on a book cover. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. So that actually segues really nicely into what I want to talk about next. Please. Uh, which is book publishing. 
And I want to start doing that with a quote that Ferrante gave to the Paris Review. Um, I'm going to read it here. She says, I'm still very interested in testifying against the self-promotion of obsessive the self-promotion obsessively imposed by the media. This demand for self-promotion diminishes the actual work of art, whatever that art may be, and it has become universal. The media simply can't discuss a work of literature without pointing to some writer hero. And yet there is no work of literature that is not the fruit of tradition, of many skills, of a sort of collective intelligence. We wrongfully diminish this collective intelligence when we insist on there being a single protagonist behind every work of art. The individual person is, of course, necessary, but I'm not talking about the individual. I'm talking about a manufactured image. And so I want to talk about the, the bit in there that has me really interested as it relates to this situation and as it relates to book publishing on the whole is that manufactured image, right? Mm -hmm. Because any author who's ever written a book for a modern publisher and has been asked to go out and promote it has produced a manufactured image, especially now, right? Like, what do you tell your authors? You say, hey, get on social media, start blogging in these places, start doing this thing. Like, really, the way, the common knowledge, the way to sell a book right now, and the way, the thing that every publisher tells all of its authors to start doing is to create that manufactured image, a presence, a platform. It's all terms that basically mean manufactured image. And so this is my question. What about the, effectively the stage name, Elena Ferrante, is any less authentic and, ma and manufactured than the name of an author who is using his or her real name. Like for me, there's almost no difference. The fact that she, and it gets to my point that she's really not anonymous. Like she is just choosing to create and she's doing the same things that any author does for his or her book. She's just doing it with a different name. And the fact that she's chosen to do it with a different name actually actually makes her more intriguing to this end and kind of gets in her own way here like i feel like if she were really and if she were really interested like if you were trying to hide and you were trying to testify against self-promotion obsessively imposed by the media you wouldn't create such a damn compelling storyline about yourself <laughs> you know what i mean like it's you it's like we were saying people want to know this stuff and if you create some incredible mystery about this woman who's been hiding out in Italy, writing beautiful novels for 25 years, and we don't know who she is, that's fascinating to me. And I don't think there's anything wrong. I mean, and again, I think the New York Book Review, the New York Review Books piece was invasive. I do. But that curiosity, that desire to know, that exactly works against this quote she's given here. And I think that she cultivates it by having... I don't know, by having created this name for herself as opposed to just being. She's become something other than just a person. You know, and she wants to... She's become a legend. <laughs> exactly. No, she, <laughs> she has, in a way. And, I, and I, it's, I don't think it's some calculated thing where actually she doesn't... I mean, that's not what I'm saying. I, I think it's grown says, organically over 25 years. No, I agree too. But I think she's created something she no longer can control. And I think that those forces that have done that actually work against the very thing she was trying to... She was trying to kind of protest against and testifying against, as she says. Um, it's like it's one thing, I don't know, it's one thing to be anonymous, and it's another thing to be out in front of anyone, everyone, like every other author, using your name to do all this stuff, except it's just not your name. Like, what's a name? What's an, especially what's a... A rose by any other name. Exactly. I mean, eventually, <laughs> when it comes to authors and consumerism and, you know, authorial brands... 
You know, that's, that's what it is. And it's a name brand, right? Yeah, it doesn't And I so mean, who cares what the name is? Like, if you found out tomorrow that whatever your favorite author is had a different name, it wouldn't really matter because you've become attached to this brand. And I don't know. I, I just think it's interesting because I think that she's, um, like, I don't know. On the one hand, I do view it as an invasive and arrogant piece, especially the bits where this guy derisively talks about how no one would give him information and everyone was kind of trying to push him away. It's like, of course they are, dude. Like, you're being, you're trying to run up against the gig. You know, this is it. This is the thing. They're trying to preserve an author's wishes, which is a very valid thing to try to preserve. But I don't know. It's, it's also something else other than being... You have to acknowledge the inevitability of the situation too, which is what Rowling was talking about. Inevitability is a really interesting yeah. term to use here. In the in the final paragraph of Claudio Gatti's article, I'm yeah. just going to read it verbatim because I think it's really interesting. Please. In an age in which fame and celebrity are desperately sought after, the person behind Ferrante apparently didn't want to be known, but her book's sensational success made the search for identity virtually inevitable. It also left financial clues that speak for themselves. Yeah, so I don't care about the financial clues <laughs> because I think that's the invasive part. It's like just leave – like when you're looking into people's yeah. real estate – I mean, on the one hand, it's like that is part of this kind of journalistic quest we have to get to know our heroes. But on the other hand, it's like leave that alone. But the bit here about you know sensational – the sensational success made the search for her identity virtually inevitable. I, I buy that. I yeah. find that to be compelling. And I know people got mad about this and I know people wanted us to leave Elena Ferrante alone – um, and I, you know, I don't think anyone means her any ill will, but like, I think that part of this, she, if she really wanted to not have this happen, there's something to the idea that you wouldn't be so <laughs> damn compelling. Well, like, I, it's great. I think she's a product of her own success. There's something about this, this paragraph that really speaks to yeah. what you were talking about yeah. with the, the machine and the manufactured image. Sure. So the first, the first sentence is, or the first clause, I guess, is, um, in an age in which fame and celebrity are desperately sought after, yeah. the person behind Ferrante apparently didn't want to be known. And at this point, um, Gotti is Gotti is very much conflating the the persona with the books themselves, which is mm-hmm. something that Ferrante has been going for all along. It's just that it turned out in a way that she wasn't necessarily yeah. hoping for. So that's the thing is I view it's. She is a victim of her own success in a way because she was too she was too good for people not to care who she was. And that gets at this idea that we really want to know who our authors are. And it's like a publisher on the one hand, it's a very strange thing for a publisher to want to propagate because on the one hand, in almost in 99% of these situations, a publisher is demanding that you get to know its authors. It says... Come meet us, come do these readings, come do these interviews, come watch when we hand over our Twitter feed to the author, come watch when we do these, you know, live videos and stuff. And then on the other hand, it's here, you get this situation where they're saying, no, 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 take all that curiosity that we as publishers in an industry on the whole have instilled in you to want, have told you you should want, and suspend it for this one project and oh yeah, this one project also happens to be the one you like best. Like it's not going to work. That's, <laughs> it's, it's too. Readers are too interested. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating though. And poor, I poor Elena Ferrante. Yeah, no, I I, I do feel and for I her do if that's what she wants. And I do believe that Claudio Gotti is right. I mean, he's got a lot of evidence. 
Yeah, it's, oh, it's well. tough. But it doesn't um, really matter because the machine is moving. And this is why it doesn't matter. This actually, It doesn't the, matter this, at all. This is why it really doesn't matter if he's right or not. I mean, it matters in terms of like journalistic integrity and stuff. And he would probably, you know, if he's wrong, then he's got a lot of explaining to do about all this invasion he's done. But like the fun of this is the search for people like Claudio and people who are interested in this sort of stuff and people who are interested in Ferrante's identity. They don't. Like, the answer, it's like, okay, well, eventually we'll learn and we'll, you know, then you got to find it. But, like, the fun is the, oh, man, we found some new, we found some new detail. We it's found treasure hunting. Thing. It's exactly. modern day treasure exactly. hunting. Exactly. It is. It's, it is. It's literary treasure hunting. And I think that Ferrante has absolutely every right and should be encouraged to do exactly what she wants. But she should know that she created the treasure hunt. Mm. Well, on that note... <laughs> uh, I'd like to switch tacks a little bit. Yeah, let's to move our on to, weekly, the, to the end here. Yeah. To our weekly write tip. Uh, so this week's writing tip is all about empathy because uh, there's definitely a lack of it in this week in America. And the world, folks. And the world. So writer Andrew DeBoost III, who you uh-huh. may know from the as the author of the bestsellers Townie and the House of Sand and Fog. Yep. Uh, was quoted in the New York Times in 2012 saying, writing is a sustained act of empathy. And I agree. Uh-huh. So, I, you know, as a writer, not only are you putting yourself in someone else's shoes, but you're writing to connect on a deep emotional level with thousands of strangers who read your book. So I was, I was curious today, yeah. because science, uh, about why exactly this happens. Uh, so I learned that we have in our frontal lobe special neurons called mirror neurons. Is this a, this is a right tip this about neurons? A, yes. Damn. Science. Right. Man, I, I was not ready for this. Folks. <laughs> Let, keep going. That light. Okay, so these mirror neurons light up when you see something we can and have done before. So yeah. it's like sure. if you know if. Eric is drinking his bourbon, and I am also drinking my, allegedly, my bourbon. Allegedly drinking the bourbon. It's gone. Uh, that these will light up. So these, That's semantic. <laughs> so these neurons are responsible for things like the phantom limb feeling that people experience after you've had a limb amputated. Yeah. Um, so they, they have a lot to do with motor skills. Yeah. Kind of like when you watch somebody getting blood drawn on TV and you can feel it. At least I can. Uh, but they also allow us to see other individuals as people. So, and what I mean by that is as beings with their own purpose and intention. And this is kind of the key to understanding the people you're inventing. That being said, there are certain things about culture that change how you see individuals or groups of people. Uh, The implicit bias over things like religion and race and gender and ability and the key to writing empathically is to understand where and what those biases are okay, and where they lie. So I present to you my new favorite tool, a.k.a. how I feel bad about myself. A.k.a. brain surgery, apparently. On a Monday, <laughs> no, <laughs> on a Monday at 2 p.m. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Harvard has created something called the Harvard Implicit, Bi- Implicit Bias Test. So you can Google this. You can go online. Um, And it's like a seven-part online test that helps you figure out where your brain is, like, assuming things that aren't necessarily true. Yeah. Uh, So they have tests for things like jobs and academia and race and gender and politics and mental health and all sorts of things. So I took this today and I learned that I strongly associate liberal arts with women. So sorry, Eric. You are now erased. (laughs) 
in my brain. That's fine. Uh, uh, as a graduate of Kenyon College. Knox. Knox. Knox College. Shoot. No, 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 no. How it's, did that's, I get that wrong? That's fine. Kenyon, Kenyon is a much better school than Knox College. Oh, my gosh. Have I been telling you all along that Knox was my second choice? Because Kenyon was my second oh, choice. Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, apparently, all the fighting we've been doing over our alma maters has is been for nothing. Has, so, has <laughs> been about a school you thought was mine that's actually much better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is great. So now I'm mad. <laughs> Finish so us should, off, Laura. <laughs> so you should take that implicit bias test. So anyway, what yeah. I'm saying to you is given um, given what we've witnessed on the debates and in this election cycle, uh, people have been talking a lot about isms. And that ism. That ism. Um, and the best way to kind of approach your writing from from a very neutral standpoint and make sure that you're writing the characters that you need to is to figure out where your bias lies. So go on to, um, well, you can just Google it. That's the best way for it to show up, but it's implicit.harvard.edu. And that kind of reflection, I mean, even beyond just that tool, um, I think that's a question a lot of people have is how do you write outside of your own experience? How do you write about people that aren't like you, that have experiences that aren't yours, that live in circumstances that aren't yours. And really, it just comes down to, like it does in your life, right? Like just being aware of your own self as it relates to the world and trying, like you're saying, trying to, trying to be empathetic towards others and really trying to understand, like really working to, and this is true when you're writing any character, right? Like to really understand them. And I think what you're saying with bias is that when you write about people when you write characters that are outside of that realm of your own experience, there's kind of an extra step Absolutely. that's needed to actually get into that character and actually be able to understand that character's real life and motivation. You have to scrub yourself before yeah. you can jump into somebody else's sure. shoes. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for Print Run. Please join us next week for more of the same, but also some brand new things. And remember, if you're a writer, send us your queries and first pages. Email us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, if after this first show of special content, capital S, capital C, um, you'll want to become a patron on Patreon of Print Run's podcast. Once a month, remember, we're doing each of these shows, the queries and the first pages, and we'd love to see you there. And of course... Uh, it should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, anonymously. <laughs> yeah, no, we won't. We're not going to like call out your name. We're going to Elena Ferranti this bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give us, <laughs> actually, that's what we want you to do. We want you to give us your. We want you to give us pseudonyms um, that we can use on the air. Tony um, America is Eric's. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, really. So we're like we kind of said just, again, just to make sure it's clear. We're going to do the first couple of those extra episodes for free. And then eventually those query episodes and those first pages episodes will be available to our Patreon subscribers. Fabulous. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye.